0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And as part of our celebration of Black History Month, we wanted to talk about a woman whose name has come up in a number of listener emails that we have gotten requesting that we talk about her and someone who we absolutely need to talk about, not just because it's Black History Month, but because we have her to thank for a lot of modern medical conveniences and practices, and that is Henrietta Lacks.
1: Yeah. Who is Henrietta Lacks, Caroline? Henrietta Lacks was a uh, black woman from Virginia, who in 1951 was diagnosed with terminal cervical cancer stage 1 epidermoid carcinoma of the cervix she had uh felt for a couple of years uh, a knot in uh her lower stomach but she didn't go to the doctor and one day after after bleeding she she did go to Johns Hopkins which was the only med- medical facility in the area who would treat uh black people And when she saw the doctor, they found that she had the cervical cancer and that it was growing incredibly fast. Once she was diagnosed, she actually died six months later. Yeah, she was only 31
0: years old, and um, she came from a very poor background. She was raised by her grandfather on a tobacco farm. She was the granddaughter of slaves. She married David Lacks, had the five kids, and died from the cervical cancer. But before she died, a sample... Was taken from that uh, th- those cervical cancer of those cervical cancer cells, um, and the thing about cervical cancer at the time was that the Pap smear had just been created, and cervical cervical cancer was incredibly difficult to diagnose. And with pretty much any patient, any female patient who was being admitted to Johns Hopkins Hospital at the time, they were having samples taken because uh, a team of doctors, Doctor George Gay and Margaret. They were a husband and wife team. They wanted tissue cultures of these cervical cells because they were looking for a line of human cells that would live indefinitely outside the body in order to study cancer. And the incredible thing about what happened with the sample from Henrietta Lacks was that it did not, like almost all of the other previous samples Dr. Gay had taken, quickly die in culture. For the most part, um, normal cells grown outside the body um, would divide about 50 times, and then they'd die. And doctors had figured out how to grow cells outside the body in 1907. So, you know, this is 1951. They've been trying to figure this out for a while. And then all of a sudden, Henry Alaxis cells grow like crazy.
1: Yeah, they were doubling every 24 hours, and Dr. Gay could not believe his eyes. He he actually started sending the HeLa cells, as they became known, to any scientist interested in cancer research. So all of this, like we said, he never asked Henrietta Lacks. He never told her this was going to happen. They just took a sample of the cancer cells and her healthy cervical cells, and once they saw how fast they reproduced and that they were so strong, they figured they had hit the jackpot.
0: Yeah, on October 4th, 1951, Henrietta Lacks dies. The same day, this Dr. Gay goes on national television holding a vial... Of HeLa cells and says, "quote It is possible that from a fundamental study such as this, we will be able to learn a way in which cancer can be completely wiped out." So the you know at this point they don't care about Henrietta Lacks like the the whole thing of patient privacy and bioethics that does not exist in medical practice at the time. All they're looking for is a way to use these cells that are reproducing at an incredible rate to in inject them with different strains of cancer or inject them with different viruses, just essentially to see how they operate. And because HeLa cells are so incredibly vibrant and grow so much, they become used around the world for an insane amount of experiments that led to enormous breakthroughs. One of the first huge breakthroughs, for instance, that HeLa cells were used for was the polio vaccine.
1: Yeah, incredible. Well, the family finally gets involved 20-something years later. They did not find out that laxa cells were being used all over the world until 1975, by which point the HeLa cells had become standard reference cells, and few molecular scientists hadn't worked with them. So after Gay's success with the cells, all of a sudden culturing cells becomes... Suspiciously easy. And there's this doctor who starts spreading what they just think is a rumor at the time that Henrietta's cells had basically infected every other culture. And it turns out that they kind of had. Her cells had traveled through the air on hands or on the tips of pipettes, overpowering any cell cultures they encountered. Because all of a sudden, you know, like Kristen said earlier, it was so hard to keep these cells alive in the lab. And now all of a sudden they're having A lot of luck with it. And so basically to accept or reject this whole chaos theory, they needed the family. And it just so happened that the family had just learned about Henrietta's cells being, you know, in labs and and used around the world. So the family had been calling Johns Hopkins. Nurses and doctors went to the Lax family in Virginia, gathered blood samples from the children that would determine important information about Henrietta, like her blood type that they could use to study her cells. The family, however, thought they were being tested for cancer for the same genes that Henrietta had, and the doctors never got back to them about the tests. So this is like ethics 101 awful all around on all sides. Yeah, and not to mention,
0: um, you know, at this point, the Lax family... Uh, still is is not uh, wealthy by any means um, a lot of them couldn't afford to even go to a doctor at that point. Um, and the HeLa cells had made a lot of people very rich because by that point, vials of their mother's cells were being sold for $25 a vial. And um, listen listen to this, quote, One scientist estimates that if you could pile all the HeLa cells ever grown onto a scale, they'd weigh more than 50 million metric tons, an inconceivable number given what an individual cell weighs. Another scientist calculated that if you could lay all HeLa cells ever grown into They'd wrap around the earth at least three times, spanning more than 350 million feet. And that is coming from the book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, written by Rebecca Skloot, who was a science writer who spent 10 years... Uncovering the mystery of HeLa cells and trying to to speak to the Lacks family about their mother, find out what they could about who this woman was, who essentially is responsible for an incredible number of medical breakthroughs. But it took so long to even get in contact with the Lacks family because they felt that they had been so taken advantage of by uh, the medical community and by other journalists who had come in just wanting to, um, kind of sensationalize the whole thing and, and continue to, to use them while they, you know, just didn't, didn't know. They had no idea that, that their, that their mothers and their, their wife, their grandmother's cells had even been taken from
1: her in the first place. Right, yes, yeah, Skloot's book definitely won't help uh, the portion of the public who don't trust physicians and scientists already. Um, Ruth Faden, who's the executive director of the Johns Hopkins Bioethics Institute, said in that this was in that Johns Hopkins magazine article that Kristen mentioned, said that the story is a sad commentary on how the biomedical research community thought about research in the 1950s, but... She says it was not at all uncommon for physicians to conduct research on patients without their knowledge or consent. And even now, I mean, there are pieces of all of us kind of floating around places. Well, it was so
0: um uh, eye opening as well to when you when you think about the the mentality of. Of where these doctors were coming from they they were it, it wasn't a bad thing that they were looking for a cure for cancer but a lot of times you know maybe that pursuit of science overlooked the human side of things um the lab assistant mary kubisek who was the person who actually took the uh, took a sample from uh, Henrietta Lacks after she had died, um, she says that she, she walked in and saw Lacks's corpse and noticed red toenail polish on her. And she told Rebecca Sclute, who was that author of The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, she told Sclute that when I saw those toenails, I nearly fainted and I thought, oh geez, she's a real person. And that's why the story is so important is because there is a, a human side to it i mean on on the plus side of things is thanks to hela cells we do have the incredible ripple effect of things including the modern field of virology biological supplies industry blood type identification genetic hybrids cloning live cell transport space biology hela cells were the first to go up in space nanotechnology uh, bioethics the HPV vaccine. Um, and speaking of ethics, Caroline, in 1966, listen to this. After a scientist injects HeLa cells into unwitting test subjects to see how cancer grows, a National Institutes of Health investigation leads to the institution of medical review boards of, uh, for informed consent by patients. And that came from uh, Wired magazine, an infographic over there by Aaron Biba.
1: Talking about ethics and just the whole industry of what has come out of, basically, is stealing too strong word? Taking these women's cells without permission? Um, in 1954, uh, the for-profit distribution of HeLa cells began. That's also when the Microbiological Associates begins mass-producing the cells. And nowadays, it's big business. We have genetic medicine, genomic science, and bioengineering that are becoming bit bigger fields. And while Johns Hopkins specifically has never sold, licensed, or patented HeLa cells, a number of commercial firms do. Um, in that article, the Johns Hopkins Magazine article that we talked about, uh, they point out that the term biobank has entered the lexicon, for instance. This is, uh, basically a living database of human cells used for research. Um, and they've been created, they're, they're everywhere now, and they've been created by a wide range of groups. Everything from disease advocacy groups to commercial research companies and, Academic centers. And back in 1999, so it's, I'm sure it's even higher now, but back in 1999, uh, the Rand Corporation estimated that there were 307.1 million human tissue samples stored in various repositories throughout the U.S. Well, and one of the most controversial aspects of the
0: Henrietta Lacks story is the fact that her cells profited so many people in these these new biomedical industries that popped up and yet her family didn't benefit monetarily from it at all. But at the same time, uh there is an article in Johns Hopkins magazine about this talking about how uh you get into very dicey territory when you open up the potential for people to profit from their own cell or their own tissue samples mm-hmm. and donating their own, like, say, blood or organs or any, you know, because then you create a market and then you might create a, a, a difficult network where uh, things might get backlogged because you have to process payments and pay people. And, um, it seems like the, the bigger issue is more a thing of patient privacy and also how the Henrietta Lack story is just one chapter as well in African American patients in particular in the United States being taken advantage of by the medical community. There are a, a number of dark, chapters in that. For instance, uh, the Tuskegee Syphilis study, which was initiated in 1932, which took place among 400 men who intentionally were not treated for syphilis, just to see what would happen, just among like 400 black men. And they were targeted because they were in a, you know, more vulnerable community who, who wouldn't have had as much of a say in things.
1: Yeah, men wanted to, researchers wanted to observe how the disease progressed differently in black people in its late stages. The men were actually told they were being treated for bad blood, but they never received treatment. So not only are these men being exploited, but they were also lied to. And in 1974, there was a $10 million settlement where the government agreed to provide lifetime medical benefits and burial service, burial services to all of the living, uh, participants. But that's not all. I mean, it goes way back. We've talked about J. Marion Sims. In our gynecology episode, he uh, did gynecological surgery and experiments on enslaved black women. Uh, and in 1855, escaped slave John Fed Brown recalled that the doctor to whom he'd been indentured actually produced blisters on his body to see how deep my black skin went. So there was just this idea of performing experiments and surgeries on black people because they were the other.
0: Yeah, they weren't as valued as, say, a white patient. And um, a lot of this is uh, detailed in Henrietta Washington's book, Medical Apartheid. Um, she also talks about how uh, black Floridians in the early 1950s were deliberately exposed to swarms of mosquitoes carrying yellow fever and other diseases in experiments conducted by the Army and the CIA. I mean, it's, it's horrific when you... When you start to just itemize these things, and in a way, the Henrietta Lacks story is far more benign because it was a tissue sample that was being taken from, you know, all the patients who were coming in with cervical cancer at the time. Um, uh, and, and it, but it just it speaks to so many different things like privacy violations, not just the the money, but also privacy violations. For instance, in uh, 1976, science. Published a paper detailing an analysis of blood drawn from Deborah Lax, who's Henrietta's daughter, and 43 genetic markers found in the Lax's DNA. That could not happen today. No. That kind of information, um, would not be, would be illegal
1: to publish. Well, in 1985, uh, the Lax family was abused again because someone gave Henrietta's medical records to journalist Michael Gold, who quoted them. In his uh, 1985 book. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I just, this family has been through a lot. And, you know, you mentioned earlier the danger in the question of payment for, for these tissues and organs and cells and the ethicist's argument. Is basically the common good model. So, no, we definitely shouldn't be paid for our tissues uh, because in their model, the payoff is not in dollars but in better medicine in the future. So you donate your blood now, you donate your tissues now, and in the future we'll have better medical care. But Faden, Ruth Faden, who we mentioned earlier, said that there's a problem with that. She says that in the absence of guaranteed access to a decent level of medical care, the moral justification for that structure breaks down
0: and that yeah and and that medical care access is an important point in the lack story because one thing that rebecca skloot brings up over and over again not just in the book but in her interviews uh, about the book um was how The family had medical needs that they weren't able to attend to. The reason why Henrietta Lacks died so quickly following her diagnosis of terminal cervical cancer was because she could not even afford to go to the nearest charity hospital, which was Johns Hopkins at the time. And so you wonder if, uh, you know, what would happen if, if there were broader healthcare access for Everyone. I mean, again, on the upside, like thanks to HeLa cells, we have drugs for herpes, leukemia, influenza, hemophilia, Parkinson's disease, etc. But um, it's uh, there's so much attached to that that we need to pay attention to. But the cool thing about Rebecca Skloot, who you know really really took this story and uh, broadcast it to the world, is that she didn't just write her book. And say, oh, I got a bestseller. This is fantastic. My life's cool. Thanks, Lax family. She um, established the Henrietta Lax Foundation to at least pay some of it forward to the family.
1: Yeah, and as of January 9th, 2013, the foundation had awarded 36 grants to members of Henrietta Lax's immediate family. 23 for tuition and books, 8 for medical and dental aid, and 2 for other emergency needs. And Sklut says that she first envisioned the foundation as one for education, but it's helped family members get a lot of other benefits. And some of those are a high-tech hearing aid for one of Henrietta's sons, truck repairs for another, new teeth for a granddaughter, braces for a great-granddaughter, tuition books and fees for five grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and a granddaughter was able to uh, study nursing. Um And
0: on February 18th, 2011, Virginia state lawmakers did pass a resolution honoring Henrietta Lacks. And the statute says um, it's, quote, in honor of all who have ever faced discrimination and exploitation and her amazing legacy, which
1: has altered medical research and care and relieved the suffering of untold millions. And people may be wondering what Johns Hopkins has done, if anything, uh to sort of you know, make amends basically for what happened to Henrietta and her family. They have established a lecture series in her name, a $10,000 a year scholarship for students from an East Baltimore high school and a $15,000 annual award for community health groups. And many people connected to Johns Hopkins have privately supported the family.
0: So while it um, it's a distressing tale, certainly, um, but it does have a, a brighter ending than the beginning we say that?
1: Yeah. Because as much as the family was, you know, abused and lied to, and as unfortunate as it was that they never got permission to take the cells from Henrietta, the fact remains that her cells have benefited science and medicine in, you know, in so many different experiments. We have so many different medicines now because of her. Mm hmm.
0: Um, and again, um, if you want to learn more about it, uh, I highly recommend the book, um, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot. That's S-K-L-O-O-T. And if you've read the book or, um, if you have any thoughts on the subject, of course you can send us an email at momstuff at discovery.com and we are gonna get to a couple of your letters. <laughs> Well, we've got a couple letters here for you about mothers-in-law. And the first one comes from Brad, who kicks off his email by talking about how his wife initially friend-zoned him, which was funny. But guess what? Now they're married. Happy ending to the friend-zone story. See? And friend-zone... You can't get out of the friend-zone. Just goes to show, ask Brad. But he writes, moving on to mother's-in-law. Mine is awesome. I actually get along way better with her than with my father-in-law, who's fine, just very set his way sometimes. She's a librarian and very crafty, which works very well with my love of reading and creating stuff. We live across the country from her, and I actually wish that they lived closer so I could see her more than once every year or two. My wife even jokes that in a divorce, my in-laws would take me and let her go. I think that's adorable.
1: <laughs> uh, okay. I have a slightly less adorable but still interesting letter from Liz on mother-in-laws. She says, I am blessed with the marvelously sweet, kind, and unobtrusive mother-in-law while my poor husband has a monster-in-law in the person of my mother. She's meddlesome, opinionated, and anytime time we visit, she orders him around like her own personal houseboy. She's also incredibly clingy, resenting it if, on our visits, we attempt to spend even a few minutes absorbed in private tasks like reading or if we try to go out for a drink at night without her. My husband once said to me that, Your mother is what God had in mind when he created Mothers-in-Law. My mother has been divorced from my father for 15 years and hasn't had any relationships since. My husband's parents, on the other hand, were high school sweethearts and say that they are more in love now than they ever have been. So I wonder if the flavor of one's mother or monster in law is at all related to one's happiness in their own relationships. Perhaps mothers-in-law who are satisfied in their own marriages don't find the need to dissect or butt into their children's marriages. Mothers-in-law who are not in happy relationships perhaps see their children's relationships as a way to have a do-over. I'd be curious to know if anyone else has experienced something similar so y'all should write into our Facebook page and tell Liz if you have had similar experiences I have a feeling there's some there's some uh, meat to that
0: theory yeah is meat to that theory a phrase? Like, mm. Ugh, meaty. I have a feeling there's a pork chop theory <laughs> out there. <laughs> that
1: sounds delicious.
0: Well, while I'm busy making up non-existent phrases, you can feel free to write us a letter at momstuff at discovery.com or send us a message on Facebook. Like us there while you're at it. You can follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. You can even follow us on Tumblr at stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com and if you want to learn more about Henrietta Access cells, HELA cells. You can read how HELA cells work at our website, it's howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics,
1: visit howstuffworks.com.